Welcome to Computer Vision Decoded. I have a really exciting episode today. We're going to talk about computer vision in the wild. We're going to be joined by our co-host, Jared Heinley, a computer vision expert, and he's going to talk about past academic experiences he's used computer vision in the wild, where he's got photos from all sorts of random sources and how he managed to do 3D reconstruction with these images. We're also going to dive into some more practical use cases for you at the second half of the show, where you can learn better how to create 3D reconstructions of various scenes using different cameras um, and having different sorts of situations around you and always be successful. So I hope there's something for everyone here and let's jump into it with Jared Heinley. Welcome back, Jared, to uh, episode three of Computer Vision Decoded. Uh, today, we're going to talk about reconstruction in the wild, 3D reconstruction in the wild. And I wanted to start off by talking about some of your past experiences. Uh, and, and, and these are experiences that you had both in your academia and professionally here at every point. So I just want to start off more in your academia, the, the projects that you worked on prior to joining our team and uh, making a huge impact in our world. So with that, uh, the first pro project I want to talk about that has to do with 3D reconstruction of, of objects using images in the wild uh, was a project you had for correcting the duplicate scene structure in sparse 3D reconstruction. And that, that's the title of one of your papers that you, uh, you worked on. And just to start off, can, for people who aren't from the computer vision world, can you tell us what sparse 3D reconstruction means? Yep, yep, happy to. So a sparse 3D reconstruction, um, it's different than a dense 3D reconstruction or a mesh uh, in that it is much more sparse. Uh, so the, the main outputs of a sparse 3D reconstruction are your camera poses. So for each image uh, that's in that reconstruction, you'll have both its position and orientation that was determined, as well as some set of uh, typically 3D points uh, that are in the scene, you know, that are points that represent to uh, points that are like of, of objects in the scene. And so what you might look at is you'll end up with um, this point cloud that uh, some objects you may see very clearly, but other objects may be sort of uh, a bit sparser. Um, and, and the points aren't going to be regularly distributed uh, over the objects. It's not going to be like points on a regular grid. Uh, it's, it's these points, uh, to even get more into the details, it's points that came from uh, key points that were extracted in the images. So for each image that's being processed, you know, there are typically thousands of key points that are extracted, and it's those key points that have been triangulated in the scene. It's, it's those triangulated key points that are that sparse point cloud. So it's a sparse set of points plus camera poses. Okay, that, that really helps set the scene for this, this topic and the next. Uh, so then, so what is the challenge? It's for correcting for duplicate scene structures. Uh, so when you say duplicate scene structures, that's, in my understanding, that is perhaps you see a building and you'll see the exact same archway or exact same window set over and over. Think of a garage door. You got the same like kind of square rectangle on the front. So what's what's the challenge with that? Why Why in computer vision and generating a 3D model of a scene with those those repeating features, What what is that happening? What's happening to the algorithm that is causing issues you have to correct for? Yeah, no, definitely. So uh, the problem with the sort of duplicate or repetitive uh, structure is that, yeah, it's confusing for computer vision because it looks the same uh, from different photos. So you can, it's the same, um, or I shouldn't say it's the same, Diff different parts of the seam have the same appearance. And so the, the computer vision code thinks that it's the same thing even though it's different. So for example, a classic um, data set that I worked with was Big Ben in London, so the famous clock tower. And if the all four sides of that clock tower look essentially the same. And so if you have a photo of the, just the front of the clock tower and then a photo from the back and you show it to a human, they're not going to know the difference. And same thing with the computer. The computer is not going to know, hey, that th these are from different sides. If all that it sees is the clock tower face, you know, it's going to say those look like the same thing. And so when it tries to compute the camera pose, like the position of those images, it's going to think that they're from the uh, the same side of the clock tower as opposed to you know distinguishing that no these are these are separate and so what can end up happening is if i have images from different sides of that clock tower from the front the left the right and the rear um, all of those can sometimes be collapsed 
into a single uh, single reconstruction. So all four sides end up being reconstructed as one, uh, and it thinks that all the photos were taken from one side uh, of the clock tower. You can imagine this too, like you said, okay, the example of a garage door. If you have a garage door that has like the same repetitive windows or the same repetitive pattern across it, uh, if you, you know, had photos that only showed you know, one or two segments of that repeating pattern, uh, what could end up happening as opposed to reconstruct, reconstructing your entire garage tour, some of that could collapse where it thinks, oh, the left side's the same as the right, and all of those get overlaid uh, on top of each other. And so it's, it's, just, it's this issue of you know, when the computer is looking at a photo, trying to identify the key points, trying to identify the texture and the colors and the patterns that it's seeing in the image, it's looking for those same patterns in all the other images. And so when it finds a match, you know, it wants those to be the same. Whereas in the real world, no, these are actually separate, uh, separate instances. Uh, just as you, and one other example, here I'm talking about objects, Big Ben, where it's the same pattern all four sides, or a garage door where it's the same pattern um, across that door. Uh, a similar class of, of challenges is when you have the same object uh, in different parts of the scene. So if I had the same uh, sign, you know, like a no parking mm -hmm. sign, you know, and that same no parking sign is at different places throughout the city. Um, if I just try to naively say, hey, well, let's match these images together. If they say, if they have the same sign in them, computer vision might think that I'm at the same location, even though it's the same sign at a different part of the city. Interesting. Okay. So, so you're basically saying this computer gets really confused because humans, <laughs> as we walk around a scene, we know we've moved, but a computer yep. system, machine vision might not know it's moved. There's, there's, there's no data saying, Hey, I'm over here now. It's trying to figure that out from just the pictures, how far it's moved. So what, yep. so what, what techniques is there different? Is there different? You add additional data, perhaps GPS data to let it know you've moved. Uh, is that an option or would it just, is it more an algorithm that the, the way in which you tell it to match images? Um, what kind of techniques is, is there at your disposal? Yeah, no, no, that's, that's a great, your great observation with the GPS. And there's a, there's a variety of techniques and it sort of depends on what kind of data you're dealing with. So if you have images that are geotagged and have GPS information, you could use that as a prior, you know, use that as a way to help distinguish, you know, that these photos, the GPS positions were a kilometer apart, but, you know, I think it's the same content. You can say, well, no, that, that doesn't make sense. But if your GPS said, oh, these things are five meters apart, okay, maybe that's more realistic. And then you could use that to help, you know, weed out those, those false positives, you know, that weed out the, the incorrect matches. Mm -hmm. um, other techniques could leverage, um, like you said, you know, we as humans, you know, as we're walking around a scene, we know that we've moved. So other techniques could leverage uh, the fact that it's, it's a video, you know, and so as the video is moving, if I, you know, if I'm taking a video of that garage door and I see all oh, the, you know, the left side and I make take a video as I slide over to the right, um, you know, I know that going from frame to frame, I kept moving, you know, maybe, you know, right, you know, in the you know, right direction as I come across. But then all of a sudden I'm like, oh wait, but the last frame of the video matches to the, in the first, and that would have been a leftward motion. But if I know that I was always moving right um, through that across the garage door, that that just doesn't make sense. If I always mm -hmm. move right, how can I end up moving left? Um, so you can you know, try to build in some of those geometric constraints. Um, there's other sensor data that you can use um, to try to figure out what was the motion and is, it, is this a plausible match based on the sensor data that you've captured. Um, what I worked on um, in my academic work during my PhD um, was I was working on crowdsourced data sets. And so there I assumed, hey, there was no GPS data there. You know, I don't have videos, it's just images from all over the place. And so uh, the technique that I used was to try to latch onto and leverage background uh, scene content. So for example, that, that Big Ben photo, the Big Ben example, you know, sure, there's going to be some photos that only show the top of the tower, but a lot of photos are also going to show things around it. So like the nearby building, maybe some of the road, mm -hmm. other buildings nearby. And so what I would do would say, well, hey, here's two photos that both show Big Ben, but the background content is entirely different. And so I would use that as a way to say, oh, no, these are from different parts of the scene, like this is from the front, this is from the back, you know, based on that background scene content. But if I had two photos that both show Big Ben, as well as similar background content, mm -hmm. then I can say, oh yeah, no, this is, this was taken from the same side. So using, 
um, not, not only the parts of the image that match, but using the parts of the image that don't match and the parts that were different also provides information about whether or not these photos were from the same area. Okay, so uh, I would just say this up front then, it's, it's an important to know all the tools that you could have if, if, you're, if you're building a, a computer vision pipeline or you wanna use it at, you know, say in your, for your job or for a hobby, you know, be careful of repetitive structures. So be cognizant because you might have issues there. And B, um, do your research. Learn learn what what these 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 different methods you have. I know there's a lot of open source tools, even for people who are just trying to hobby it together, or you know, contact people like us at every point. Uh, I know we have we've we've been working on this for a long time. So um, yeah, that just shows that you know, computer vision sounds easy. <laughs> but there's all these issues that can pop up that you might not know about going ahead into it. So this is a good one. Uh, yeah. I see this one all the time, especially around just scanning buildings. I've just noticed, especially there's a lot of repetitive window casings and things like that. If you like you said, if you crop in too far too, yeah, that, that can be the downfall because you're losing some perhaps context around the scene that would have been much more helpful had you got that as opposed to getting too close to the scene. Yeah, yeah, and that's and that's a good point. And that's that's um, you know my, my biggest recommendation if someone's struggling with um, repetitive structure has a scene that has a lot of repetitive structure in it. My biggest recommendation is yeah, just step back, get you know, make sure that your imagery is capturing more of the context of the scene. You know, that those unique mm -hmm. elements because that that's what's going to help provide um, help provide better context to figure out where that image is placed. Um, and just for clarity, you know, when I talk about repetitive structure, you know, you may think of like, oh, a brick wall. It's like, hey, it's a wall that has a bunch of bricks on it. That seems, that seems like it's repetitive. And like, yes, it is, and that it's a wall made up of a bunch of bricks that are all somewhat similar. But each of those bricks has a distinct visual appearance. And, you know, oh, there's going to be sometimes there's mm -hmm. you know, some mud or some dirt. Um, you know, and the computer, while to a human at a high level, you might say, oh, yeah, that's just a bunch of bricks. You know, the computer's able to see the differences in... Um, some of the patterns or the texture of, of that material. Um, mm -hmm. Same thing with like a pile of rock. You might be like, oh, that's just a pile of rock or a pile of sand. It all kind of looks the same. But it's like, well, no, there are like bright spots and dark, you know, dark spots. There, there is some variety in, in that in those patterns. Um, contrast that with, like you said, with, with you know, windows and buildings, some man-made structures. That those can be some of the most challenging examples, especially you know, new buildings, you know, made out of you know, metal or concrete or white. You know, where you have you know, truly like the same window, you know, it was manufactured the same, installed the same uh, in mm -hmm. many different places. Um, that, that's more the, the style of repetitive structures that, that I'm, I'm thinking about and talking about here. That makes sense. Uh, fortunately for all those archeological uh, historians trying to capture these 3D scenes, these little brick buildings in stone, you know, it's just like no two bricks look alike. So yep. that does definitely help. Yep. Um, and you'll notice a lot of examples are brick buildings things like that they just in my my experience i've never had a brick building have an issue like this yeah. so. brick is perfect that's it's a <laughs> yep. great great reconstruction surface yep um, so i can imagine wood is too so wood grains things like that yep all right so so stepping past this topic then uh you you, you kind of touched on the next project that you worked on that i um kind of takes what you're talking about here this very small subject of repetitive structure and you and you blew it up really big uh world scale in fact uh it's called reconstructing the world in six days uh, that's a project that you had worked on um not just you obviously with a, a team so i'm gonna show for people that are not listening to the podcast or actually on the youtube channel i will have just kind of a video playing as he talks and uh he can talk about this video but it's just showing some visuals of sparse reconstruction from this project. So it don't make sense when he starts talking, but I wanted to make sure that people saw that and knew what they were seeing here. So um, here I'm put up on the screen with this, this project, it was called reconstructing the world in six days. And can you just tell us about this project? Give us a like, quick background and what we'll kind of uh, just start out there. Yeah. Yeah. So the goal of this project was really to see how can I pro how can we process a, you know, a massive data set of imagery uh, and get useful 3D reconstructions out of it. So in this case, um, you know, previous works uh, had talked about, oh, how do you, how can you process, 
you know, three million images, four million images, you know, on a single computer uh, and, and get reconstructions out of it. So like, oh, all of the images from Berlin, Germany, or all of the, you know, not just all the images, but a bunch of images from, you know, different <laughs> cities around the world. But it was at most, you know, three million, uh, four million, something like that. Um, whereas what I wanted to do was say, well, okay, why only three million? You know, why not a hundred million? What, what sort of challenges do you run into when you, you have that big leap um, you know, in the order of magnitude uh, of the data set size? And so the, the, the task of the project was saying, okay, how can I sort of scale up reconstruction techniques, scale up these pipelines and these algorithms to handle a you know, hundred million images you know, on a single PC, on a single computer, and get reconstructions out of it? Um, and so what we're seeing here uh, in the YouTube video is uh, some of the sparse reconstructions from the different uh, buildings and landmarks and scenes that were automatically discovered inside of these 100 million images. So from that 100 million images, you know, automatically discovered over 12,000 different uh, parts around the world you know, that people had taken enough photos of that I'm able to you know, generate a 3D reconstruction of it. So you know, Notre Dame, or, uh, the Eiffel Tower, uh, Mount Rushmore, Big Ben, all these different landmarks around the world, as well as other kind of smaller, lesser known places you know, where there happened to be enough photos um, of it. But you, you can sort of imagine 100 million images from just and then they weren't sorted. You know, some of the images had geotags, but we didn't use that in, in processing. We just get, you know, grab, grab the first image, grab the second image, grab the third image, and sort of in a randomized order. Um, and then trying to figure out, well, hey, have I seen, you know, here's an image of a building. Have I seen this building before? Where, you know, which other images is it related to? Um, and trying to automatically group those photos together so that then they could be, you know, turned into 3D reconstructions. Mm -hmm. and, and so looking at this video, for people who are just listening to the audio, it's it's just a kind of a, a loop of different locations around the world, and you're seeing a bunch of black and a bunch of red dots, and um, so what what we're seeing here is basically a very sparse structure of a landmark, and those black those black dots that's the landmark, correct? And the red dots are the where the where we decided the camera locations correct. are the camera poses. Correct. Um, interesting. Yeah. And so, yeah, so those red dots are the camera poses, and the black dots, that's what I said before about like those triangulated sparse mm -hmm. 3D points. That's what those black dots are um, okay. in the scene. And so you can kind of see a little bit of the structure. Yeah, and as I'm looking at the, those aren't red dots. As you get in a little closer, you can see they're actually, um, I don't know the right word. Little like pyramids pyramid, or pyramid shapes or whatever. And, yeah. and so those are where the cameras are and which direction they're pointed. And I know some are long, some are short, and that's just probably the different camera properties are they uh yep. probably the lens or the uh, you know the focal, focal length. length and yeah um okay so was the biggest pro was the biggest hurdle for figuring this out it, i mean obviously you have cameras that got to be super grainy there's got to be cameras that are you know probably a lot of smartphone cameras because that's yep. whatever people are doing but this is also Flickr, and this was 2015 so also probably just a lot of cameras point and shoot so not high-end cameras yep um was was more issues you ran into uh, did you end up dropping a lot of photos or you only found out of those hundred million? Was it only a small subset of them? You know, were, I mean, obviously you probably had millions of photos of just kids and birthday parties and baseball <laughs> games and things, yep. but, um, I, I'm assuming your biggest issue probably was, was, was trying to match the cameras and figure out which ones are actually the same scene. Yep. Yeah. Um, and that, yeah. That, and that, that was the biggest, so the biggest contribution, uh, of this project was figuring out you know, as, as you sort of browse you know, and, and work through, uh, when I say you, I mean the computer, as the computer is analyzing all of these photos, you know, which ones are of the same scene. You know, when, it's, when it's analyzing a photo, figuring out, hey, is this one you know, useful or not? Um, and the way this, the method was designed was kind of interesting. It was, it was a streaming fashion. And so it would, just, it would load you know, a set of you know, 100 images from disk at a time, process those images, figure out which ones were useful, you know, and, then, and then discard, and then move on, load up the next set, process them, discard. And so it was sort of like you know, an infinite processing engine where it could just keep loading data from disk, would process it, figure out where it went, you know, and then would discard. Uh, and then it had some you know, memory um, that it kept around to, as, it, as it found more images. Um, but yeah, the biggest challenge is, as you said, like there's you know, a lot of different kinds of cameras, you know, a lot of different um, 
places all over the world, you know, of, of both useful, you know, interesting things like these buildings where there were a lot of photos, but as, yeah, stuff, you know, kids' birthday parties, people just taking photos of their pets or the food that they were eating. Um, I think there was one, someone had set up a camera that looked like it was like a time-lapse video of their aquarium, you know, and there were like fish moving by or things like that. So there was just a bunch of just really diverse, varied imagery that, you know, I might not have expected otherwise. Um, yeah, so that just, one's interesting. Yeah. Sorry, if you were looking on the screen, it was all the cameras were pointed up because they were doing like a fresco on the ceiling of a probably <laughs> some sort of cathedral. Yep. And uh, I mean, I've I've been to Europe and I know how it is. You get inside a cathedral and everyone just is looking at the ceiling because they're that's what everyone wants a picture of. If they let you take pictures inside. Yeah. Yeah. So interesting. And so this was was this all done on one computer? This was. So this was all done on one computer. Um, a lot of it too was just you know getting good algorithms and then too just getting good uh, engineering as well. So this was on mm-hmm. a single computer. You know at the time it had a you know pretty high end CPU. I think it had you know 16 cores or something, uh, mm-hmm. which by today's standards you can you can go much further. Um, also you know I was doing a lot of GPU uh, computation, um, and so it had I think like three GPUs in the machine uh, that I mm-hmm. used for for various operations. Uh, but yeah, it was a single computer. Um, in six days. And so that, that six days was sort of uh, like the first four days were spent um, sorting through the photos, trying to figure out which ones were related to each other. And then the last you know, two days, it was more like a day and a half, was actually doing the 3D reconstructions um, of those different photo groups. Mm-hmm. Yeah, if, again, if you're on the YouTube, you can see this is interesting. They had the Statue of Liberty, and you can see there's a bunch of f- pictures close up, and all the little pyramids are short, and then as the further ones away, they're probably from a boat or yep. from shore across the water, so they all have these telephoto lenses. So they got these really long focal lengths. Um, so you can you can almost tell what type of camera. Are they using a zoom camera, a zoom lens? They're using you know, a wide-angle lens just, just, just by where they have to stand. Yeah. Right? Um, very interesting. Yeah. All right, so we definitely established that you know how to 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 use images in the wild, um, you know, because obviously you have no control over these photos. It's just mm-hmm. you know, these are a research data set that Yahoo at the time uh, let people use for this sort of projects. Um, a lot of amazing photos here. Um, I'm going to just show another video here while it's still playing, but I'll flip over to this next one, and this shows the Pantheon in uh, in Italy just kind of like a, a final, more of a dense reconstruction. And so can, just can you just tell us what a dense reconstruction is for the few people who might not know? Yep, yep, so a dense reconstruction um, still, you know, at least in my case, I, I, it's also, I call it a point cloud. It's still a point cloud, there's still points in the scene. Uh, they're just much denser than they were in a sparse point cloud. So mm-hmm. whereas in a sparse point cloud, um, you know, each point corresponded to a key point in an image. So I have an image, you know, maybe I extract a few thousand key points. And so if it's like a 12 megapixel photo, there's 12 million pixels. Out of that, I'm only selecting a few thousand of which, you know, that are maybe like the corners uh, of buildings or the corners of mm-hmm. windows or like blobs, or like a dark circle on a white background. You know, so there's sort of these, you know, highly unique, uh, repeatable uh, recognizable points in the image. So those, the sparse point cloud is based off of um, in that few thousand interesting points per image. Whereas a dense point cloud or a dense reconstruction, you know, each pixel in that image is going to contribute to a point um, in the scene. And so a lot of times these are different class of techniques. Whereas the sparse point cloud is based on key points, uh, a dense point cloud might be based off of depth maps. And so for each image, for each pixel in that image, you have a depth uh, of where that, that pixel corresponds to in the scene. Um, and so it's you then, you know, that can take that that pixel and that depth projected out, uh, now you have a point in the scene. And so that's what you can start to use to build up this dense point cloud, uh, which just has, you know, a, a bunch more points in it. Yeah, interesting. Okay, so that makes a lot of sense. That's why you, if I play this one more time, you saw how much uh, how much more dense that was. Um, yeah. yeah. That's, and that's, you're trying to just maximize the number of features. And you typically see this, those textured meshes that people get for photogrammetry output as well. They're, they're not using sparse, they're using a dense point cloud to get the geometry. Because um, instead of a few thousand, like you said, you have hundreds of thousands, millions of points. Yep. Um, and, it, and if they're dense enough, they look, it looks, they look photorealistic. Yeah. yeah. That's a, <laughs> um, a dense point cloud can look like a textured mesh just because the points are so dense. Mm-hmm. Um, but they, those are separate things. You know, sometimes yeah. people start out with the point cloud and then tur- turn that into a mesh. 
and then texture it, and now you've got a different yeah. different representation. So this so this example is is also from crowdsource photos. So, so yep. you know that's what's amazing is, you know you, you you can have not ideal conditions, and I'm sure the the lighting inside this building is not super bright. Um, you can still still make it work if you have um, a good set of algorithms behind it and uh, appropriate hardware configuration. Um, all right, so. Uh, last kind of real world application that that you've dove into with images from the wild is uh, at every point uh, you, when you join our team um, early on we were we were still building we still are building a stockpile reports which is uh, one of our customers that does does 3d modeling of bulk material pi uh, piles uh, at bulk material production yards think of like a rock quarry or um, even salt piles for DOTs, anything that's piled up in bulk materials, uh, we measure it and we turn it into, we, we capture photos or video of it, turn it into a 3D model, and we provide numbers to finance teams to, to do their business and, um, you know, people running yards for operational decisions. So um, along with that, we have an app that lets, lets, our, lets the users walk around and capture imagery in the wild and, um, specifically for that use case we're not caring about getting the best looking 3d output we just want to get an accurate 3d model of a stockpile and that and we have iphones we have uh, drones we have installed cameras those are again cameras that are installed permanently in fixed locations and i'm just going to talk about the first two methods using an iphone and using a drone and um what sort of what sort of issues have you seen that we've had to overcome in, in with that, um, the, especially with the iPhone? I notice that we take video instead of photos. And I have a lot of people say, why aren't you taking photos? They're higher quality. They're higher resolution. And I'm taking this, this 1920 by 1080 video of a stockpile. Well, would I get better results if I, if I took single images? So can you talk about when you're out there and you're, and you're in a situation where you, you're trying to collect you're trying to collect useful data, not to get the prettiest looking 3D model, but trying to get one you can you can analyze and measure off of. And let's say, yeah, you're trying to get a stockpile measurement or you're trying to get um, the layout of a, you know, a room for architecture design. Why, why did we go the video route? Why, 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 how is that helpful for collecting data in the wild? Yeah. Um, the video is helpful because it provides uh, redundancy and it sort of removes the burden um, on making sure that you've captured enough images. Um, so yes, images are higher resolution, you know, and so for some applications, you know, when you're trying to get the most resolution and detail possible, an image-based data set can, could be better than a video-based data set. But at least in practice, in, in the kinds of reconstructions that I've done, having just additional frames beats resolution uh, in many cases. You know, and so you can imagine um, as I'm walking around with that video, if I'm recording 30 frames per second video, you know, that's a lot of frames that I can pick and choose from to, you know, use in the reconstruction. And so what, what's nice there is if I just had photos, you know, maybe I walk around a, a stockpile and I only take 100 photos of it. And, oh, there's nice overlap between those photos. But if some of those photos maybe were accidentally blurry, um, you know, or there was some sun flare, um, I may end up with part of those photos being unusable. And with those images being unusable, that's going to leave sort of big gaps uh, in the reconstruction as I move around. Whereas with video frames, maybe only two or three video frames were blurry, but then that fourth one was perfectly crisp. You know, and in that span of four video frames, we haven't moved very far. That's only a fraction mm -hmm. of a second. You know, and so we can use that fourth video frame uh, in the reconstruction. Um, and so it's, you're able to... Uh, leverage sort of the best video frames out of there um, and, and it sort of ignore the ones that, that weren't as useful. Um, mm -hmm. It's also just helped us with that redundancy. Like if there are challenging environments, so in that case, like I said, with sun flare, you know, if there is some sort of sun flare coming across the, 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 the image, um, well, maybe we'll just extract uh, more frames in that area. You know, because as, as sort of the sunbeams move across mm -hmm. the image, you can say, well, okay, I'll take a, you know, a photo where the sunbeam was on the right and then, a, you know, extract a video frame that was in the middle and extract a video frame that was on the left. You know, and so you just, you can sort of dynamically select the best video frames to give you that good reconstruction. And, and, and with how we've built it, that's not, 
that's not a technician selecting frames. That's yeah. just algorithmically combing through each image because uh, you know a video is thousands of frames, not just a yeah. few hundred. Uh, yeah. and, and that's something I've I've noticed going out just anecdotally uh, as I've played with these photogrammetry apps, and I'm like, oh, I want to model the facade of this building in really high detail, and I'll go out and with my you know iPhone's a great photo camera, or I'll use my one of my mirrorless cameras, and I will take what felt like hundreds of photos. And then I go to upload them on my computer and I have, I have like 89 photos. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, it, it, I don't think people realize to get a, a high number of frames, you know, uh, it, video is a great way to go specifically too, if let's say time is an issue. So I don't have all the time. Like I, you know, these people who are doing, um, going back to archeological captures for three reconstruction of these you know, famous scenes they want it to be as accurate as possible but they usually set up a whole day just capturing one small scene or it might be a large scene but you know they might be several days with a drone high-end cameras taking all stills and they'll end up with massive amount of, of high-res imagery versus someone on this doing a stockpile or a warehouse maybe they need to you know capture a 3d scene of a warehouse they don't have the luxury of of, of you know eight hours of taking mm -hmm. photos they mm -hmm. they need to move uh they need to reconstruct it quick same with even self-driving cars using computer vision to see the environment around them you know they, they have to get a lightweight fast footage fast output so um yeah that's very interesting as opposed to drones so talk about drones so drones were not taking video for the most part we do our i think we are taking video for specific situations but majority of the users at stock bar reports um, they're not using they're not using video they're using cameras still so like what's different why why with the drone do i skip the whole i'm going to take a video and i'm going to go straight to, to stills what what's unique about that situation yeah there i sort of see two different things like one is and one of the biggest thing is that the drone uh it's program you know programmable uh mm -hmm. in that we can program in a flight plan, a plan that we want, saying, hey, fly within this geographic region and make sure that as images are being captured, there's certain uh, overlap, you know, sp mm -hmm. a specified amount of overlap between those images as it flies along a flight line as well as when, when the drone turns around and comes back along a neighboring flight line, make sure that there's enough overlap between those flight lines. And so you can get very consistent um, imagery out of that drone because you're able to program it and have it follow that flight plan mm -hmm. uh, compared to a humanist who's trying to take photos you might actually forget you might think you're taking enough but then oh yeah you turned a corner and you forgot to take enough photos as you turned and, and things like that where the drone's just going to do it automatically um, another thing too is just you know with with the drone you uh, a lot of times the drones are flying at you know 400 feet and so you're just a lot higher a lot farther away from what's being captured um, and so yes we could do it from video and we get great reconstructions off of that uh, but sometimes just having that little extra resolution you know at least higher than the 1080p uh, video um, is a little more useful there but uh, mm -hmm. but still the biggest thing is just the consistency and capture um, does does really help so so you the, I would say, say it in a nutshell or make it short. Uh, a human is terrible at capturing images, 70% yep. overlap. If I said, uh, I need you to capture, you know, 70 or 80% overlap, I mean, I would be at a loss unless I've been really doing this for a long time to know what that looks like in image to image versus a computer. You say, map out this territory. I want 75% overlap front face, you know, along the track and side to your next row of images be 60% overlap and it's gonna it's gonna pretty well nail that every time because you know that's what computers are great at precision yep. Um, yep. versus a human and so yeah you end up with a lot less images but you don't only need the images that we tell it to capture as opposed to you know let's overshoot <laughs> and work our way backwards <laughs> um, so that's that's interesting so as people are thinking of as well as capturing um, you know Three year construction in the wild. That's that is a consideration. If I'm using an iPhone, if I'm doing terrestrial based scanning, or you know, don't have a system to, to interval captures at the right speed um, to get that overlap, because you do need a lot of overlap between images. Um, that, that either programmable drones good or go video. It just depends on which direction you're going to go. Yep. Um, so that that makes sense. Um, and then so. We also have installed cameras. So instead of moving a camera around, now the cameras aren't moving and we have um, a few of them. And that way we can 
we can capture high cadence of a scene. We can reconstruct the scene every hour, every 15 minutes, whatever interval we decide. Mm-hmm. You know, you just trigger the cameras. What's 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 completely different there? Because now we're going from thousands of images of a stockpile because you know someone on the site is just walking around with an iPhone, or you have a drone. They take off a drone. And it's going to take hundreds of photos. You know, maybe even a thousand if it's a huge site. Now you got two, three. How many? How many images? <laughs> what's the bare number of, number of images can you use to get a three D reconstruction? Just need two. As Just long two. as you have two two images from different positions, you can use that to triangulate points in space and get our three D reconstruction. Interesting. So. And so, like, what's what's what are you thinking about when you put those two cameras up? Are, are you are you trying to get a high a high separation? Or is there like a sweet spot that you have to figure out? Um, is that that is that all dictated by how far you can have it from a scene? Um, what, what are you thinking about when you're trying to set up a system like that? Yeah. So what I'm thinking about there is, and you, and you hit it like there. Yeah, there's a certain separation that we're looking for. So compared to you know the the, the other image based or the video based data sets, where I'm going to have maybe hundreds of images observing that object, observing that scene, and have lots of redundancy. You know, when I only have two photos, there it's like every every pixel counts, um, mm-hmm. and I need I need those photos to be as useful as possible. Um, and so there we're looking for. Um, sort of a consistent triangulation angle. So it doesn't really matter how far away the object is. Oh, if it's 10 feet away or 100 feet away or 1,000 feet away, um, you know, what I'm looking for is a particular angle. Um, mm-hmm. You know, and so as the farther away that I'm, tr- of the ob- farther away the object is that I'm trying to reconstruct, uh, the greater separation I'm going to have between those, those cameras and those images, ideally, so that I can get a nice you know, angle that helped me triangulate, um, triangulate that point in space. So you can, you can think about this as if my uh, cameras were too close together, um, those photos can look almost identical. And I'm not going to be able mm-hmm. to distinguish, well, hey, how far apart really is that thing? Um, similar to how the human eyes work. You know, our eyes are you know, spaced a certain, apart, uh, certain distance apart so that then we can triangulate points in space and sort of perceive depth. But that depth, you know, as a human, um, perceiving depth using just the difference between our eyes, that only works to, you know, very limited range. After that, there's other, you know, spatial cues and our brains doing all sorts of fun stuff to, to let us know how far away things are. Uh, but a computer doesn't have, doesn't have some of that. You know, it's the computer is relying on that math and the, the, the trigonometry and the geometry to triangulate those points. And so there is sort of a sweet spot to know how far apart to put those cameras mm-hmm. so that you get good triangulations and good reconstructions. Because, yeah, if it's too close, images look almost the same and there's no, can't perceive depth, and if the images are too far apart, then um, the scene looks completely different. And you're, you're, it's really hard now to figure out which parts of the image are the same uh, between oh, those two sense. images. So, so there's a lot of math going on there, or a lot of um, just really understanding how your software, your algorithms work, and um, kind of figuring that out. And as as we've installed these, you know, hundreds of cameras now, we've you know, kind of have to do a little bit of figuring that out in the field because you might not know exactly where those cameras can be placed until you're out there, on on you know, especially in like a we're putting them out in asphalt plants and. You say, I'm going to put it here. And the site manager might say, well, unless you want a truck to run it over every week. <laughs> and so, you know, trying to figure out where can we put these, that, that has been something that we've, you know, you know, we need someone like Jared, we need someone like you who we can have on the phone saying, I think we're going to put the camera here and, and here and kind of plan it ahead of time. And, and, and you give us confidence that that's going to work. Um, definitely. Um, so that's, that's very interesting. And then I, I've also noticed with these, uh, there is still limitations no matter what. There's, um, if I'm going to put a camera in a specific position and they're going to say both cameras looking primarily north facing or let's say east facing, you're going to have a problem with the sun at one point. So, mm-hmm. you know, there's going to be times where that's just not going to work or you just have to have a very, you know, a very good camera. So uh, can, you, can you talk about that? Is, is um, when you're setting up a, a, a system or you want to, scan something you have sun in you in your face um i always like to equate this we've all taken photos of people at sunset i'm at the beach get my picture it's sunset it's beautiful and you take the photo and it's and you have two options you either have the background that looks nice and the person is a black silhouette or the person is looks great and the background's just blown out all white uh <laughs> you're unless you have a really good camera and I can tell you the iPhone 13 and the 12s, they're doing really good with, with handling that, that dynamic range, but most cameras can't. So when, when, you're, when, you're, when you're doing that three-year construction 
and you have to be forced to look in the sun because this is in the wild. This is not in a studio. This is not inside. This is out. What, you know, like, I, it, would you always just default to get the best camera possible? Or, uh, you know, like, where would your be suggestions there? Uh, I know smartphones is a good suggestion mm-hmm. because they, they, they computationally can figure that out, I guess. I don't yeah. know what they're doing. They're bracketing and taking images. Um, what, what are some techniques you could do there? Yeah. And so some of that, you know, you said, okay, yes, like, you know, getting getting a better camera can help. Like, yeah, if you'd have a camera that has a higher dynamic range and you can expose, you know, that that backlit subject um, more ideally, then yes, that does help. Because at the end of the day, you know, the thing that you want to, you know, the object in the scene that you're trying to reconstruct needs to be I say well lit, uh, mm-hmm. you know, it, it can't be completely underexposed or overexposed because then you're sort of losing out on that pixel data, um, you know, and, and won't be able to reconstruct it. So yes, better cameras can help. Um, also, there's just different techniques um, can help that. So moving the camera in a different way that tries to ca- have that sun, you know, or that bright mm-hmm. light out of view, you know, or hide, like if you're saying, trying to take a picture of a person or an object, well, like hide the sun behind the person, kind of get a little bit closer to the person so the sun's hidden, um, or just maybe try to do it on a different day, you know, wait till the sun is higher up in the sky. Uh, the best day a lot of times for scanning is, you know, on a cloudy day where you have sort of nice, you know, uh, even illumination, there isn't any hard shadows, there isn't any bright sunlight, you kind of have sort of this nice, um, even lighting. So trying to plan out when you're going to do that scan also goes a really, really you know, a far way because in some in some situations the best camera is still going to give, you know, a suboptimal result uh, mm-hmm. because there's just so much light coming in or it's too, if it's too dark. You know, if you're trying to do it at nighttime, cameras are really, really going to struggle. You're going to have a lot of noise, a lot of underexposed images or blurry images that even the best camera may may not um, give you give you great results. Yeah, I I say never. Never underestimate the power of just putting your hand out in the scene and covering the sun if it's yep. in the corner and you just can't get it out and you can move around and guess what? Your, your, if your hand becomes part of the 3D reconstruction, you can always remove that later <laughs> as opposed to as opposed to the scene being completely washed out. I've done that or a clipboard or sometimes that's just that sun is just, you know, that's why you have on, if you have a nice camera, you have the, 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 the lens hood that will help block out those extra rays. But guess yep. what? You can give it a smartphone. Uh, if you're watching on the YouTube video, I have this technique. You just stick your hand right on top of your phone and it creates your own little sun shield. And you can just put that right around there and it'll cut out a lot of the sun. So, okay. So that's interesting. So that, that the last part of this, of this, of the show, I just kind of wanted to talk about practical tips. And I think you covered a lot of them as we've talked. Uh, and I just want to kind of go over a couple problems that you will run into if you want to scan things outside. And it's just, it's just kind of what you either have to think about ahead of time or you got to figure out how to troubleshoot while you're in the scene or perhaps buy better gear. Um, but we'll talk about them and just kind of get your reaction to each one and, and what you suggest. So we did, I was going to start with lighting and you did a really good job already addressing that. I always say if it's cloudy, it's like the best day there is. There is. However, I've had, I'm, I mean, I'm in Oregon and, I've been I've been in uh, I've been in all sorts of places where when it's really dark clouds it also can be just poor lighting so you know if you can get the uh, high overcast you know the sun's still kind of beating through that through the clouds but it's not it's not direct sun that's 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 your go-to time if that's when you want to reconstruct the thing but perhaps thinking of stockpile reports customers they got to do it the day they got to do it so they got to they got to make do um, so you suggested. You know, picking noon <laughs> or whatever solar yep. noon is, right? Yep. Um, uh, you suggest um, blocking out the sun, or te- there's angling techniques, right? So you can instead of looking direct, you don't have to always look directly at the subject, right? You can kind of capture things at somewhat of an angle and still yep. get a good three-year construction. And that might be all you need to keep that sun out of the way. Um, yeah. Or or using, I've also found um, after doing you know thousands of 3D models of stockpiles. Sometimes the morning before the sun is high enough in the sky, it'll be bright enough and you will have the pile or the subject, whatever you're scanning, blocking the sun just because it's kind of like low on the horizon. Mm-hmm. So that's something to think about. But again, your lighting might be kind of poor, so it's got to be still bright enough. There's there's probably about like a 30-minute window where you can kind of get away with some of that. Um, okay, so then another one is uh, distance from objects. So now 
if I want to, let's say, scan a building and it's not safe for me, well, for one, you got to get far enough back to get the, uh, the subject. And like you said, repetitive structures. You want to get far enough back to get context, but maybe you're too far back. It's not possible. Do you, uh, is there a problem with just going with the super wide fisheye lens or, or should I figure this out a different way? Yeah. Yeah. So the, the problem with a super, like if you have a, a fisheye lens, those can be challenging to reconstruct sometimes just due to all the distortion. Uh, there's ways to generate a camera, you know, a lens calibration and undistort those photos um, before using them. But sometimes even then you lose a little bit of visual quality mm -hmm. um, just because you're, you're trying to take these distorted pixels and then undistort them. And so pixels get stretched and squashed in different ways as a paste, you know, as opposed to using just a, a more normal um, lens configuration but yes a, a, a more like a wider angle lens um, like even on the iPhone you know you've got sort of if you have the iPhone you know 12 or 13 Pro you know where you've got the selection between the telephoto the wide and sort of the ultra you know ultra wide um, lens options you're just using that sort of wider lens can be helpful in, in tight situations just to give you that greater context when you're trying mm -hmm. to scan you know that, that, that full building facade um, other times too just being careful about your capture pattern. You know, if you're trying to scan a facade, scan a building, um, you know, you don't just want to walk up and if you can't see the whole thing in one shot, you, know, you don't just want to park there and wave your phone around to look at it from different angles. You know, it's again, just, you know, how, how do you move? You want to move the camera. And so, you know, let's, let's start with the first floor and, you know, first story of the building and, and walk across, tap capture imagery, the first floor, and then, you know, um, and go and say, okay, now I'm trying to focus on the second floor and, and capture kind of photos, you know, as you walk back and forth, mm -hmm. um, seeing it from different angles and trying to make sure you have enough overlap between those different things. But yeah, you know, with when, if, if you expect that there's a lot of repetitive structure, a lot of the same windows, the same pattern, the same, you know, um, things on that, yeah, just trying to get further away using that wide angle lens um, can really be helpful. Yeah, interesting. And, and I've, I've noticed that like a GoPro with their 120 degree lens, something like that, you get away with that pretty well. Mm -hmm. Pretty good, pretty good. I actually like to tell it to, um, you can you can distort it or undistort. I find when you kind of have it already undistorted, it works pretty well, but you lose a little bit. Your It crops out, I think, some yeah. of the distorted edges. Yeah. But even then, you, you still got a pretty wide view. And also the iPhone, the really wide, and I'm, I'm sure the Samsung and all the other Google, you know, they all have these extra wide views, those all tend to be good. Uh, can you talk about that too? Not all lenses are the same. So as I've also looked at other lenses, I noticed the wider they are, they tend to have more distortion around the edges and that can be a problem, right? Is, is that it's not just like, hey, that was really cheap 16 millimeter lens for my mirrorless camera. Let's go for it. I can get tons of the building. Could that be a problem? Is that, that distortion something we can just overcome? Or is that just like, really we should, you know, you should learn about what works or maybe try it and then return it if it doesn't. <laughs> I mean, um, yeah, at the end of the day, yeah, sure, you always have to just try it and see what works. Um, but, I mean, the, the reconstruction techniques, you know, are attempting to compensate for distortion. So one of the process, you know, as part of the process of doing the 3D reconstruction, the computer vision algorithms are trying to estimate uh, characteristics of the lens, trying to figure out, you know, mm -hmm. how, how much distortion is there in the image, what, how, what's its behavior, um, and it uses various, you know, mathematical formulas to um, to model that lens and model its characteristics. Um, but there are cases when you have just, you know, a really poor lens that has sort of uneven distortion throughout the image. You know, maybe the left side of the image is more distorted than the right because that lens is sort of off center um, from the camera, or isn't actually parallel to the the sensor plane itself, the camera sensor and the lens. If those are tilted or misaligned in different ways, you can get uneven distortion throughout the image. But then it becomes a lot harder to estimate uh, during the reconstruction process. Yeah. Um, and so what that can cause is just the, the pixels along the edge of your image aren't as useful or, or maybe mm -hmm. can't even be used at all because when the code, uh, the computer vision algorithms try to use those pixels to triangulate points, they don't line up because they're distorted and, and things just aren't lining up mathematically. And so you end up sort of losing the benefit of having that. I've, I've that definitely seen that on a, I use a 200 degree lens and it, it definitely cropped it. You know, I think the edges, <laughs> nope. after I did the lens calibration on each lens and I had several lenses like that, it was actually those 360 cameras and it definitely cropped off specific nope. sides of them. Uh, but still, even with that, I got a pretty wide view, um, which was which was great. Okay, so that's that's good to know. So 
Get a good wide lens if you can, if you need to be close to a subject. Be smart about your capture strategy. I like that. You kind of like grid off your, think of whatever you're capturing, grid it off. You know, start low, move your way up, work your way back down. Um, that sort of um, thing. Also, I always recommend to people, if they can if they can get access to um, these, these free drone capture apps, you can see the patterns that they create to capture um, 3D models, and you can mimic that with your with your feet and your hands, and just with the camera in it, and just walk and like, okay, they're gonna grid off. It's looking down, perhaps. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm looking straight on. I'm just gonna mimic that exact same captures, but the difference is the camera's pointing straight, you know, horizontally, but you can still kind of do your zigzag up and down and um, all that. You could just, I always like to say, copy what they're doing, just apply it to apply it to a different different direction. Yep. Um, okay, so then when I'm when I'm also out there, I notice there's let's say I'm doing like you said repetitive structure buildings are those new nice shiny steel buildings with lots of glass. You can have lots of reflections. What happens if you have too much reflection? Is that what what's happening there? Why would that be something to, to be really concerned about? Yeah, reflections are challenging because um, a lot of computer vision reconstruction techniques assume that a point in space has a constant appearance no matter what direction you're looking at it from. Um, you know, it's because, and that, that's coming down to this, this task where we're trying to figure out, when I say we again, the computer, the computer's trying to figure out um, which pixels, you know, match to which other pixels in between two photos. You know, so I have the photo of the wall from two different angles, I'm trying to figure out, oh, okay, well, hey, this pixel in this image matches to this point in the wall, which then matches to these pixels in the other image. Well, if that mm-hmm. wall all of a sudden is reflective, you know, when in the first photo, when I look at the wall, it may be one color or one appearance, but I look at it from the other photo from a different direction, the appearance of that wall is dramatically changed based on the reflected light that's coming now from a different angle. And so it makes the task of figuring out which pixels are the same between two photos, much more difficult or even impossible uh, for certain techniques just due to that changing uh, appearance. And so, mm-hmm. yeah, reflective surfaces, um, you know, are, are, are pretty challenging for, for computer yeah. vision. Okay, well, that's, that's, that's good to know. Uh, I can offer some strategies around that as well. So obviously it can't track the surface because it's just changing. Um, that's why water also doesn't work. You know, it's just the appearance of it is moving and reflective at the same time and transparent. So all those things are bad. Uh, w- one thing I've noticed a lot of people say is they can use the specific sprays that you can spray something mm-hmm. and then it adds a matted finish to it. And then after like hours to 24 hours, that, that spray just kind of disappears. Uh, that's for like vehicles, obviously, things like that, windows. I also have seen personally have seen people scanning interiors with windows and they just cover the windows with like mask these masking tape and uh like drop cloth paper that you use for painting and just cover them up with paper you know something that's hey you don't care that i mean not like you're going to capture that window or that um that mirror in a bathroom if you're doing an interior scan anyways might as well just cover it up um and then lastly what what we've also used is, you know, LiDAR fusion. So it's not always works for everything reflective, but um, Jared, you know, like think of a car, you got a glossy reflective car, that active sensor using an additional sensor source to get depth maps to figure out that surface. You've used that as well. Is that correct? Something we use is is the LiDAR. So, um, you know, here at every point, we have several apps now that are, are utilizing that LiDAR. So you don't, you don't have to think twice when you're scanning a car of, this too reflective it, it, it does a really good job at still recovering that in mix with the photogrammetry the photo based data we have all these different sensors you can mix and match to, to to get that okay so we got we had lighting reflections repetitive structures we've already talked about that at the start of the show just you know think about how you're capturing get more context uh, and then obstructions this is kind of like the mm-hmm. last one as i'm thinking of obstructions um you're going to be outside again. You can't tell people not to come around this area. You can put caution tape up, I guess, if it's like your own site. So you're doing your warehouse. And you're like, hey, this is off limits for a few minutes. Um, but uh, as you're reconstructing something in 3D, what happens if someone walks through the scene? Like they're not staying still or like a forklift. So you're in a warehouse and forklift just drives right on through. What happens? Yeah. So a lot of times, you know, using um, 
I'll say traditional three reconstruction techniques, structure for motion, the, the point cloud-based reconstruction things, things we've been talking about here. Mm -hmm. When you have a moving object in the scene, it just doesn't even show up in the reconstruction. Um, and that's because similar to what we just talked about with reflections, where reflections, the reconstruction is trying to, it assumes that each point in the space has a consistent appearance. Uh, another assumption it's making is that each object in the scene, it's not moving. So it's only recovering mm -hmm. the static parts, you know, the unmoving parts of the scene that have consistent appearance. Um, and so if you had, you know, a, a truck or a vehicle or a person that just is walking through the scene, um, you won't see that person reconstructed uh, in the reconstruction. Um, the exception to that is if they stand in place, if they stop, if that car or vehicle stops and stays there for a while and you have enough, if you have multiple photos or video frames of that, then you may start to see uh, that object appear. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, typically you won't see it reconstructed. Now, uh, another exception to that is, let's say that object, you know, you're, if you're walking down the street and a car drives by and you keep walking at the same time, well, if, if that car and you are walking at similar speeds, there may be a whole part of the scene that wasn't captured in your video or captured mm -hmm. in your photos due to that occlusion. So you can be missing, uh, missing parts of the scene there um, if, if, that, if that object obstructed part of your view. Yeah, and it, it, you bring a, a good point of um, like someone walking into your scene as well. I've noticed, again, anecdotally, they just like to stare at you and, what are you doing? <laughs> get out of the way get out of the way you're in the scene however if you're trying to there's all these fun apps now they're using photogrammetry right to i think like scan a maze or uh point precise there's a bunch of different ones out there now for iphone you can use and and android uh or just on the desktop and um i think it's always fun to scan a friend or scan a family member in a cool scene and you want to get everything around them um I've noticed that people get wiggly and they start to laugh. And so I, that's why it's really important for them to stay as still as possible, even like hold their breath um, <laughs> yeah. because, you know, they, if they move, things get blurry, things don't show up. If they move an arm, they might have no arm in the end. So, uh, you know, but but it's always fun to do those. So I always say to people, we, we can't stay as still as you think, for one. Like just we breathe, so we move a little bit. So if you can be fast, <laughs> stay still. And then again, if you're doing like a building, something like that, yeah, maybe you can time your shots between traffic. But if it's moving, you know, it, you can always take multiple shots from one spot too. You know, hey, oops, there's something's in the way, take it again. Yeah, that, that, one, that one image where that one object was in, that won't be included. So that's good to know. It just includes whatever's behind it though. So we can't, we can't use that image to reconstruct something behind it. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. all right. So, I know we've I've kept you for nearly an hour here, and anyone who's been watching this, they pretty much you know like they can skip going to college and learn about computer vision because they're gonna learn it here, but uh, <laughs> well not quite. But uh, anyways, there's some a lot of practical tips here, um, and the, I guess one thing I didn't touch on, and just I don't want to spend a lot of time on, but there's cameras. It, it, I I always am a big proponent of smartphones. I don't think people realize how good even like an iPhone 8 is or like a. Yeah. Or a, or a Samsung Galaxy S20 or like several years ago phone. You don't need to have a new phone. You just have to have a phone and you're good enough to start capturing things in the wild, video, photo, um, as well as, you know, there's these high-end, I almost tell people not to buy a high-end camera unless they know what they're doing, right? I'd say maybe learn with the phone. But when it comes to drones, I suggest get one that you can program because you can take the burden of capturing right out of your hands and just say, yep. here. So like, an, um, I, I don't like to just call out specific brands, but a couple that I know are good is there's like the DJ, DJI Air 2S has just added the, the ability to program flights. And that drone is not over $1,000 now. I think it's still under $1,000. I could be wrong. You can get them used. And then there's the Skydio, um, that as well. You know, you can pre-program that. Uh, that's a great drone. I know there's there's... Uh, unique there's a bunch of other brands so i'd say if you're going to use this for work and you want to actually get get results you can manually fly a drone but you got to know what you're doing and at that point you probably don't even need to watch this um but i always say go with you know spend a little money to get a good enough drone to capture it but also just know that a sub one thousand dollar programmable drone the dji one i'm talking about or the skydio both have phen phenomenal cameras so you're not gonna have an issue with the camera either. It's, it's mm -hmm. you know, you don't need a, you don't need to spend thousands of dollars to get in with useful um, drones. Could could I do 3D reconstruction from like, 
I don't know, a really old point-and-shoot camera that I found from 2012. Probably. Is it good Probably. enough, Jared? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's so. the thing. It's, it's a, so much of um, 3D construction. Yeah, like you said, you know, it's... It, as long as you have a photo, you know, and, and, and put a little bit of effort into, um, you know, planning out your lighting, planning out your capture pattern, um, it, that, that makes a lot more of the difference mm -hmm. than just the, the, the specs of that camera or yeah. um, the lens that you were using. Uh, and if we looked at your papers, I mean, that the 100 million Flickr images, I can tell you were from either 2015 or earlier. And I'm yeah. sure there was lots yeah. from before that. And um, yeah. There was probably a lot of garbage that still had useful data in it. So, um, just just learning the capture pattern. So, with that, I I think we'll conclude this episode. Um, I I think next episode you you already you already told us what we should be doing. We should be talking about capture strategy for reconstruction in 3D. <laughs> I know there's a lot of computer vision that we haven't even talked about. We've just been mainly in 3D reconstruction world. But if I think we we do this episode plus the next one of what's capture strategy, I think that people will learn basics to go out there and go capture something um and there's a lot of good resources online but i you know they can come here and learn something from us especially from a computer vision expert who has taught me a lot um i think anyone can go out there and start capturing and learning to to, to hack things at their at their own rate at their work or for fun yeah. um so thanks everyone for coming again this will be posted on our every point youtube channel you can capture this or you can listen to this in audio format on um, basically, all the podcasts, you know, formats, there's, you know, there's going to be Apple, there's Spotify, there's you know, Google Podcasts, all those. We'll have them all out there for you guys. Um, and uh, please provide your feedback. Let us know if this was handy. This was We went much longer than we have in the past, but from, from feedback, people wanted more. So we decided, let's make these shows a little bit meatier, a little bit longer, and see what people can get out of it. And so if you saw if you heard something on the podcast, please, please, and you want to see what it looked like, that video, just go find us. Go search for the word every point, all one word on YouTube, and you will find our channel and you will find this posted there as well. And in the show notes, I will link some of the papers Jared has worked on and um, just some of the things we mentioned. So if you want to like look for a camera, I mentioned a few drones, things like that. I'll put those in the show notes as well. So everyone, thanks, Jared, for your time. Thanks, everyone who listened and who watched. And we'll see you guys in the next episode.